Hello and welcome to A New and Ancient Story. This is a podcast, a series of conversations, interviews, and occasionally speeches dedicated to the transformation of self and society. The basic idea is that we are moving from a story of separation to a new story, new for the dominant culture at least, of interbeing. What that means will become apparent as you listen to this series. We explore things like technology, spirituality, agriculture, healing, economics, politics, ecology, relationships, education. I mean, pretty much everything that is undergoing a transition today as our old story nears collapse. If you want to engage these ideas more deeply, you can come to our website, charleseisenstein.net. Hey everyone, Charles Eisenstein here. Uh, before I introduce Laura Delano, I want to give you a little preamble to this episode of the podcast, because we're dealing here with a really touchy subject, which is psychiatric medications, um, particularly antidepressants. We live in such a highly polarized society today, in which for so many issues, the default posture is a fight. And the default question is, which side are you on? So we live in an atmosphere of right and wrong, good and bad, us and them, my side and their side. And that means that when someone comes along with a different viewpoint than your own, uh, you might feel attacked. Like this person sees me as on the wrong side or bad or as one of them. So I've got to defend myself. Like, like here's somebody who disagrees and they think that there's something wrong with me and, and I'm a bad person. So... Yeah, so as probably a lot of you know, I'm a critic of current pharmaceutical psychiatry, but please don't reach the conclusion that I'm therefore shaming people who take these drugs and saying, well, you know, you're on the wrong side of this. You're bad for taking this medication. I'm just not operating from a good, bad paradigm. It's not that anyone is bad for taking antidepressants or even bad for prescribing them or manufacturing them. In fact, to say there's something wrong with you for taking these drugs is exactly the same error that motivates the drugs to begin with. Basically, um, if you're depressed, there's something wrong with you, with your brain, and we can fix that. So it's this, this is the um, psychic climate that I would be contributing to if I were blaming and shaming those who take the drugs or who are in the industry. My view is actually that there's not something wrong with the diagnosed person, with the person taking the drugs, with the person who's depressed or anxious or whatever, but that the wrongness, if you want to put it that way, is in society. And that what we call mental illness is a symptom, a symptom of a society that quite literally drives people crazy or makes them anxious or depressed. So if we take the system that we live in, its values, its life prescription, if we take all that for granted as inevitable and unchangeable and right even, then of course, if you're an individual and you're not well adjusted to that, you've got to do what it takes to adjust, which could be to take the 
pharmaceutical meds. It's like if the universe consists of cages, then you have to adopt, have to adapt, I mean, to life in a cage with whatever chemical help that you can get. Now, some of you uh, might point out that there are other ways to adapt to the cage, you know, other ways to change your brain chemistry. You might contend that yoga, meditation, psychedelics, nature immersion, and all kinds of other practices are demonstrably more effective than pharmaceuticals at treating depression, yada, yada, yada. Yeah, but again, these options are not as systemically supported as drugs. They don't fit as easily into a busy modern life. They don't have an army of credentialed professionals to encourage them and prescribe them and administer them. Insurance isn't gonna pay for these things. For a lot of people, they just are not even on the menu. So again, like given the situation that most people are in, who can blame you for being a good patient and doing what you've been taught, doing what the doctor, who's a figure of such authority and prestige, tells you to do? Like This is not a shameful thing. It is a journey from the story that told you, yeah, here's what you do if you're not happy, to a new story. So this blame habit, this habit of finding the bad person also looks to doctors and the pharma industry. But here too, we find, again, good people doing what circumstances lead them to do. We find doctors immersed in a medical culture that has a 200 year grounding in a biochemical, biomechanical model of the human being. And that pervades their entire education. It's like giving people hammers and training them highly in the, in the proper use of a hammer, of course, they're going to see every problem as a nail. And so on down the line to pharma, pharmaceutical chemists and the whole industry. And, and you know, you might find greedy, manipulative, abusive people in all these professions, but they are the exception. Most of the people are, are good, caring people, not gibbering fiends. And that means that find the bad guy is not going to change anything. We have to understand that we are all in this together. We are all locked into but coming out of a system that makes all this inevitable. A system whose symptoms include these psych psychiatric conditions, whose symptoms include the prescribing of pharmaceuticals for these conditions, whose symptoms include the entire industry that has defined what is a normal, proper response to being depressed. So anyway, I wanted to flag this issue of blame and shame to invite you to listen with different ears. If you are on psychiatric drugs or in the industry yourself, just take this in as a data point. The data point being her story, Laura's story. Take it in as a data point without leaping to the conclusion that I'm attacking you or she is shaming you because that's not where, where either of us are coming from. The experiences she describes are, again, symptoms of the system we all live in. Part of that system is a story, a story that leaves no alternative. So Laura's story violates that story. 
it shows that there is another there is another way to think about these things there's another alternative and there is a way out it is part of a more general awakening a more general reclamation of sovereignty from the collective powers that tell us what to think and how to feel and that punish and pathologize our deviations if you've been medicalized i want this story to be liberating i want it to be supportive and not something shaming yeah, really the message that I'm opening here with is that you've done your best. You've done the best you could given the situation you were in. And perhaps with new information, the situation changes. Hey everybody, Charles Eisenstein here with Laura Delano, who I met oh maybe a year or two ago. <clears throat> she came to one of my retreats and I was really uh, moved and inspired by the work that she does with the withdrawal project. That's the uh, project that you're putting energy into right now. Mm -hmm. The retreat that you were at was called The Space Between Stories. And one of the main themes in that is the breakdown of normal, the breakdown of the navigating system that tells us how to, how to do this, how to live life, what to do if you are sick, what to do if you are unhappy, who to go to to fix it, how that's supposed to work, how to be a good girl, how to do this right. So maybe you could tell us, and I've heard the story already. And by the way, if you hear like kid noises in the background, spoiling the studio perfection of this <laughs> podcast, then just deal with it. <laughs> so yeah. So what did that look like for you? The, the process of becoming somebody who rejects a lot of the conventional approaches to mental health? Yeah, well, it's it's a question I'm still exploring for myself, and in many ways, I'm like actively in the midst of unlearning a lot of the old stories I once carried about myself. Um, but I'd say I began to actually question those old stories back in 2010, and just to maybe step back a little bit and share about what 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 my journey looked like leading up to that point. I, I grew up in a quite an affluent town with access to a lot of like resources and opportunities. I had went to private school, I you know played lots of sports. I was surrounded by a lot of very successful people and um, and I'm really grateful for everything I was given growing up. but I can look back now and see that as a young girl who, was very sensitive and deeply feeling deeply connected to what was happening around me. I had this kind of deep disconnect with a lot of what I was seeing around me and what I was feeling within myself. And so, you know, I learned that to be a, a successful, worthy human being, you had to have good grades in school and do what the teachers told you and memorize all the information you're given perfectly so that you get a hundred on your tests and to just receive what you're told and learn how to regurgitate it back very skillfully. And I just happened to be the kind of kid who could do that. And so I did that. And, but something deep in me I see now was not aligned with it. It just, it, it took me a while for that uh, disalignment to, to, 
make itself known. And that actually began when I was 13 or so. And I see now, of course, you're hitting puberty, everything's called into question. You have all these physical changes happening within you, all these social changes are happening. Um, and yeah, I basically went from being this like, quote unquote, good girl who got good grades in school. And then similarly in sports was, you know, competitive athlete who was, you know, winning tournaments and this and that. Um, I went from that very quickly overnight to a terribly confused, lost, afraid, angry person. And and it happened in a very acute way. I was uh, standing in front of the bathroom mirror, brushing my teeth before bed one night. And I was at that time president of the middle school and just this well-respected kid who kind of had it all going for her. And and uh, I was looking in the mirror as I was brushing my teeth and I just, for whatever reason, began to look deeper and deeper into my eyes, just deeper and deeper. And I began to have this out-of-body experience where I lost touch with my hands and my legs and my torso and everything around me went black and I was just staring at my face in the mirror, like in a tunnel almost, just completely out of my body. And I just kept staring deeper and deeper until suddenly I realized this is a stranger. I don't know who this girl is. Why is she looking at me? Like, who is she? And I don't know how long I stared at this stranger for. I mean, it felt like an eternity. But um, when I came back into my body, I had no idea what had just happened, and I was completely terrified. And So your parents took you to the local shaman or the local mystic, <laughs> and your shamanic training began. Exactly. No, if only. Yeah, I mean, what ended up happening is I, I tried to suppress the experience because I didn't understand it. And, I, and the narrative I constructed for myself about what it meant which was the best I could do at the time, was that I'm a fake person. I don't have a real self. I'm a stranger to myself. I'm just this programmed robot there to get good grades and play these sports and make and you know accomplish these things, but I don't have a real self underneath. I'm completely controlled by these forces beyond me. That was basically the, narr- the, the best narrative I could come up with. And so I ended up continuing on trying to pretend it didn't happen, but it was only a matter of time before I couldn't hold that anymore and I began to really act out at home. I kept it together outside of our house, but with my parents and my sisters, I just began to scream and curse and hit and push and lock myself in my room and and talk about killing myself and cut. I started to cut myself and I just was enraged and despairing and yeah, and no shaman got involved at that point who I ended up finding myself in front of was a psychiatrist. And I see now my parents, they did the best they could. They, yeah, I mean, you can yeah. imagine, like, their, their, their beautiful little girl all of a sudden is, is not happy anymore, and they, they don't know what to do. They don't know what to do. And so if they turn to the people that they trust. Totally. The, the holders mm-hmm. of, of our, the people we invest with, with healing power in our perceptions. Totally, yeah. I mean, they... Parents in American society today are taught that if your child is struggling mentally or emotionally, the responsible thing to do as a parent is mm-hmm. to send them to a professional. And and it's 
yeah, and I and so I hold no blame towards my parents. Of course, I'm actually quite grateful for the whole thing today. Maybe we'll get to that later. But I completely understand. And, and they didn't have support themselves. There were no spaces for me to go to for this. I was so, I felt so alienated from everyone that even if someone had tried to help me who wasn't a professional, I probably would have said, you know, screw you, get away from me. I just, it's, seemed almost inevitable that given mm-hmm. the context around me, given the stories my parents were believing, I was believing, the town I grew up in was believing in, it just seemed inevitable that I'd get psychiatrized and, and that's what happened. <laughs> yeah. So what did they like, just give you pills? Yeah. In that and... first appointment, I was told that my anger and rage and outbursts and then my deep despair were signs of mania and depression and that I had juvenile bipolar disorder and that there was no cure for it and but don't worry um, you'll be able to manage this with medications you'll have to take them for the rest of your life but you'll be able to to manage there I was 14 years old being told like your brain is defective there's something fundamentally wrong with you and for the rest of your life you're going to have to be working to pretend to fit in to the human race so so in in the psychiatric model of the world there really is no such thing as a valid mystical experience if you have perceptions of something beyond what is conventionally considered to be real then those are delusions if you are experiencing synchronicities in your life, those are called delusions of reference or something like that, because there obviously isn't real. You know, there aren't real synchronicities. They're just kind of this fabrication that you're projecting meaning onto. And that projection of meaning comes from a dysfunction mm-hmm. um, in your brain. Otherwise, you wouldn't be believing that the world is actually meaningful or intelligent mm-hmm. um, or anything other than a random bunch of forces. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, and, and basically, you know, I'm saying this because I can't remember what the statistic is, but a lot of people have the kind of, or a kind of mystical experience, maybe not identical to the one you had in front of the mirror, that violates our culture's conception of what is normal and real other cultures maybe it wouldn't Mm -hmm. right other cultures might you know take you to the to the wise man or to the you know shaman or whatever Mm -hmm. Um, or maybe you wouldn't even need to because maybe those are familiar to everybody in some way and it's known how to work with them Mm -hmm. Um, i've i mean my kids have had experiences not like that, but like that. I approached it with, with, with interest. And maybe, maybe not even making too big a deal about it. Yeah. You know? So they gave you some, they, I'm sure they called them medicines. And were you then able to con- get back to getting straight A's? And... I, I, it's interesting. I did continue on playing that part of you know, quote-unquote successful kid after being labeled bipolar and put on those drugs, even though I'd had this profound realization that these these um, boxes I'd been put in lacked meaning and what is it all for? Why does an A on a 
piece of paper, what does that, what meaning does that hold? It, it's just a construct. Even though I'd had these, what I now see as, as profound realizations, I ignored them and suppressed them and um, I think was just so afraid of myself and of trusting my instincts that I I did continue on playing the part of the so, so-called mm. successful kid. And, and I did it at first also reject what the psychiatrist told me. I mean, I took it as such a profound insult to who I was. Mm-hmm. And so I did the best I could to um, reject the diagnosis and... Um, I luckily didn't take the pills she put me on regularly. I'd hide them or throw them down the the, the toilet or in this, put them in the sink whenever mm. I could. And so I was able to somewhat maintain ownership of my body and my consciousness through high school. Like, you know, not fully bought into this idea that I was sick, needing so-called treatment. But as I said, I did continue on in this part that didn't make sense to me. And I see now, like, I, of course I did, because when you have this profound realization that all the stories you've been taught about what it means to be a good person are, are bullshit, but you're only 14 years old, like, you don't, what do you do? No one's offering you, you an alternative. Yeah, yeah like, you see no other way to No one's offering you an alternative story. Mm-hmm. Like, you're just stuck knowing it's wrong, but not knowing right. what to do. Although nowadays... Kids are like, you know, discovering Alan Watts or something like that, <laughs> yeah. you know, and, and, and I think it might be changing now. There are other, I mean, and there's a lot of uh, really pathological, dangerous stuff out there too. But yeah. At least if you Google, I don't know what would happen if you Googled something like nothing seems real uh, or like you'd probably get some interesting stuff. I hope you do. I hope it isn't like talk to your doctor as like, yeah. you know, the top five pages of Google hits. But I, I, I hope that's the case. And yeah, for whatever... And it's interesting, if that's not the case, then they're, they're going to be, you know, with the censorship now that's coming online, the stuff that the really uh, important information might get demoted as fake news, you know. Totally. And I've, already, I've heard about these kinds of, you know, so-called alternative um, sites being blocked or mm-hmm. and already and and yeah and I don't I mean I I often want people often ask like you know if you'd ha- had something else like what would that have looked like how could it have gone differently I mean I I sometimes think about that like had I stumbled on like Huxley or yeah um, you know like could it have been, totally yeah. could yeah. it have been different for me could I had I had the chance to see that what had just happened to me in that mirror was like a profound like ego death transcendence of self like yeah. liberation it wasn't something to be afraid of it was something to be fascinated and curious by like you said you've been with your kids when they've had similar kinds of experiences but no I just didn't have that chance and so I ended up like eventually by the time I got to college and I found myself at Harvard because I stayed in that role of what I thought success was thinking if I can reach the top of the top maybe I'll feel okay when I get there maybe I was wrong that all of this is bullshit and and I will get to a place like Harvard and finally be happy and and so when I got there um I had all these expectations invested in what might happen for me and none of them came to be the Mm -hmm. first night I was there on campus I was just 
wandering around completely disoriented. I think I got stoned and was just like looking at all my classmates like, who are these people? Like, who am I? Where am I? What is this place? Like, why am I not okay? What is wrong with me? And I just spun out that fall. Hmm. I barely slept. I did lots of drugs. I found myself deconstructing like space and time and language and nothing is real and it's all a social construction and I found Foucault and I just like <laughs> spun out and wanted to die all the time and eventually a few months in was like they that, that, that psychiatrist must have been right there's no reason for me to want to die look where I am mm. look at what I've accomplished there must be something wrong with me and that was the point that I just gave up on any sense of like I, I really lost touch with my instincts at, at that point around the bullshitness of, of the stories I was in. And I just fully embraced this one story of I'm mentally ill. That's, that's mm -hmm. the explanation for all of this. And I became a very good compliant patient at that point and became, and stayed one for the next decade. basically. And, yeah. So you put yourself in the hands of the benevolent authorities <laughs> and lived happily ever after. Yeah. <laughs> Because oh. they were right. <laughs> oh, if only. And yes, I mean, I did put myself in their hands. And yes, I, I, it was quite a different unfolding than happily ever after. <laughs> I mean, what was it like? I mean, I hear the stories, you know, first they put me on this medication and then that caused side effects. And then they put me on another one for those. And then they put me on another one for those. And did you end up like on multiple medications and multiple diagnoses or what was? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, because bipolar was my primary label, the so-called standard of care is already multiple drugs because you need uh -huh. a mood stabilizer to help even your ups and downs, you know, to help mm. balance your ups and downs out. And then you need an antipsychotic for your highs. You need an antidepressant for your lows. So I was immediately put on multiple drugs. Um, and I remember actually coming to think of this as so-called sophisticated mm -hmm. polypharmacy, like psychopharmacology, just, mm -hmm. wow, they've spent all this time thinking about the various elements of my disease and they've like fine tuned the treatment so that I have a little bit of this for this and mm -hmm. a little bit of that for that. Um, I was, that was completely how I, I thought of it. And I actually eventually came to have a sense of pride in how many drugs I was on and eventually in how many diagnoses I had because the deeper I went into this kind of psychiatric patient identity, um, the more I came to believe in the medical model and the medicalization narrative as like the one true narrative that can validate my pain. Mm -hmm. Like see how sick I, I see how much pain I'm in. I'm this sick. I have this many diagnoses and I'm on this many meds. It was, became my way of showing the world how much pain I was in because there was no other language that seemed as legitimate. So, so in a way what happened is, is like starting with that experience in front of the mirror, your received identity, your kind of default cultural identity that was demolished. And then you were offered a new identity as a mentally ill person as a patient mm -hmm. and became attached to that identity. Mm -hmm. So how did that identity stop serving you? Like, what was it that bore you out of that? Oh yeah. That's such a big question. Um, I mean, 
that began, so 2010 was the year that I began to, to call that identity into question. And just to kind of set the context for it, um, from that fall at Harvard, when I really became a good patient and bought into that whole identity up until 2010. So, you know, basically a decade, Mm. um, I just went, you know, got more and more diagnoses, was put on more and more medications. And with each step along the way that I went further into the mental health system, my life fell progressively more apart. Like I I did somehow manage to graduate from college. I don't know how, because I don't remember anything I learned. I was so medicated. I had no friends. I wanted to kill myself all the time. I had to take time off to go into the psychiatric hospital. Like it just, I don't know how I made it through, but I did. And all through my twenties, just, it was just a progressive progressive loss of my ability to be in the world. Couldn't hold down jobs, couldn't maintain friendships, couldn't take care of myself physically. Like I just was physically sick all the time, so disconnected from my body. And so just year after year after year of progressively worsening dysfunction, despair, hopelessness. And so by the time 2010 rolled around, you know, there I was, 27 years old, attending day treatment at a psychiatric hospital all day every day on five psychiatric drugs with you know a whole slew of diagnoses from like bipolar to borderline personality disorder to binge eating disorder to substance abuse disorder just so many different diagnoses all I was was a mental patient and and what ended up happening that I think started this shift for me was that I came face to face for the first time with the Uh, human rights elements that are at the heart of the mental health system. And by that, I mean, I experienced force and coercion for the first time. Um, I'd always been this good compliant patient. Yes, doctor, whatever you say, I'll do. Three different events happened in early 2010 that involved me being forcibly hospitalized with security guards involved and like it was quite a traumatic experience where I realized they own me. They own my right to fresh air. This doctor who's decided I need to be inpatient right now has complete power over me. I was made to take a drug that I didn't want to take while I was inpatient. So I realized then they own my body. They can put whatever they, I don't have the right to say no to, to what they're putting in my body. And then the third event was a therapist calling the police on me when I slept through an appointment because I was so sedated on the drugs to do a well quote unquote wellness check on me. And so these three events happened that made me see that this system I had placed all my faith in that I had just so surrendered myself to like literally owned me. They owned my body. They owned my right to fresh air. They owned my identity. And how did I never see this before? And so it threw me into a place of questioning and also a place of anger. And then at that point, what happened was that I stumbled across a book that um, ended up serving as the real catalyst for this shift I had. And the book was called Anatomy of an Epidemic by Robert Whitaker, who's a medical journalist. And mm-hmm. basically, in a nutshell, um, the, the thesis of the book is that um, if if you look at what the data is actually saying about psychiatric drugs and their long-term use, you find that 
the story is very different than what we've been led to believe as a society about you know just how safe and effective they are, and that really the the rates of disability due to so-called mental illness have skyrocketed in our society over the last twenty five years, and this syncs up perfectly with this explosion in psychiatric drug use, and and so this thesis is that like what if our so-called treatment is what's at the heart of why so many people are so so-called sick. The treatment um, is causing the problem. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I read this book on five drugs, having been on them for at that point a decade straight, with my life completely falling apart along the way, and it was just this profound aha moment. I said, "Holy shit! What if it hasn't been treatment-resistant mental illness this whole time?" Which was what I'd been told. Like you're so sick, Laura, that even our best treatment can't help you. Um, what if it's been the treatment? And so at that point, I, my whole world was thrown into disarray again, just as I'd lost my identity back in the mirror. Like now I was losing my mental patient identity and I was just so, I was completely uprooted and terrified because I'd been so invested in it for so long. And so that really began my path out of the mental health system which itself ended up being the most <laughs> difficult experience I, I'd ever had, um, but which yeah. I'm ex- very grateful for. Right, because it's not so easy as just like, oh, I'm just going to stop taking these drugs, right? It's, uh, the withdrawal can be profound and dangerous. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I had no idea. At the time I came off of all those drugs, um, I didn't, understand anything about the risks of coming off off of them especially coming off of them quickly um, I didn't even really understand the their pharmacology in the first place and just like how profoundly they had affected my central nervous system because I'd been le- believing that I had this so-called chemical imbalance all of these years and that these medicines were just these magic bullets that were just adjusting the imbalances and tweaking things and getting things back to getting things back into order, you know, that, that was, I had just unquestioningly believed that without ever actually researching it Mm -hmm. because I was just so uncritical through those years. And so when I came off of those drugs in 2010, I I didn't take the time to really understand what they had actually done, which was essentially reconfigure my entire central nervous system, my gut, like my thyroid, all of these parts of my body had been so impacted by these drugs without me even recognizing it. And so when I came off of them, I did so very quickly. I came off of five drugs in five months, which is essentially cold turkey. And I was just so physically sick, like migraines, random vomiting, huge, horrible boils breaking out all over my neck and my face, disgusting smells coming out of the skin on my chest. No matter how hard I scrubbed with soap, it smelled like just rotting garbage. And I can see now that it was just these toxins coming out of my body. I couldn't sleep for months. Um, I had the most agonizing, like looping, racing thoughts. Like I was incredibly paranoid about people judging me and like looking at me and my emotions were on this profound roller coaster and you know life on the drugs wasn't pretty either like i the drugs never helped me i never felt good on them but coming off of them really sent me into a, a kind of of hell that i that i lived in for a time until i began to heal which i think really started 
I started to notice changes happening around a year and a half off. Mm-hmm. Um, so that first year and a half, like every day was a battle to survive. And I was very lucky and privileged in that I, I had an amazing support system around me. My family took care of me. I lived with my aunt and uncle for a time. I didn't yeah. have to pay rent. I mean, you basically got to understand that it's a full-time job for yeah. a year and a half. Because we saw that movie the other night, um, Crazy Wise. I, I was thought it was a beautiful movie. Um, and one of the characters in the movie, it's a documentary, Adam. Um, you know, he quits the drugs. And, you know, he'd been the same story as yours, in, in fact. You know, happy kid, well-adjusted, popular. And then he has a mystical experience. Mm-hmm. He, he has these incredible realizations, metaphysical realizations. He's writing down equations about God and self and identity and energy and the cosmos, you know, and like these diagrams, like this, the, the, like sacred geometry diagrams and stuff like that. And, and you know, of course he would be diagnosed as, that would be diagnosed as a manic episode without even looking at what he was producing. Like, is there actual wisdom in there? And from the tiny snippets I saw in the, in the film, it's like, yeah, like the guy's onto something, you know? Mm-hmm. So what do you actually do with that, with, with that inpouring of information? Not so easy. Like if, if he had had a mentor who could hold him in that and, and, and say, okay, your lifetime challenge is to bring this into the 3D. So slow it down. What's, like, I mean, there's a way to work with people like that. Yep. And, and it requires, you cannot work with someone like that formulaically. Like you have to be familiar with the territory. How many psychiatrists are even familiar with that territory? How many of them have been to a mystery school? You know, how many of them have had deep spiritual training mm-hmm. in a lineage? So anyway, um, but of course he didn't get that. He got medicated instead. So mm-hmm. then when he comes off medication, instead of getting that kind of support that you got, he, you know, gets whatever kicked out of the house, ends up homeless, gets beat up by robbers, his jaws smashed. Like, and yeah, it was, such, it was heartbreaking, you know, to see the, his childhood photographs, you know, happy Adam, and to realize that it's not just like this one tragic story in a society that's basically okay, but, you know, in ways more or less brutal, it happens to maybe most of us. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The, the quashing of human potential, like you can see, like even after all that was done to him, there's still such a beautiful human being Yeah. that it's like, you know, it's like, I get the impression like, like, so there's maybe a weed, a dandelion. Maybe you shouldn't call them weeds. A weed, the definition of a weed is where we think that it's growing in the wrong place. <laughs> we don't like where it's growing. That's a definition <laughs> of a weed. The definition, same as the definition of a crazy person or, totally. a, 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 you know. Uh, so yeah, there's the weed and so we stomp on it. And then, and it comes up again and we crush it and we poison it, et cetera, et cetera. And, and it's so resilient, so tough, even though all of its stems have been clipped off, et cetera, et cetera. And it, it comes up again. And, and there's like, you can see like the stumps of the, of the places where it's been cut off and damaged and stuff. Yet it still grows into a really beautiful flower. Mm-hmm. 
And I think the, that we are like that too. We are that, in fact. Like that's what life does when it's a weed in that circumstance. And here's what life does when it's in your circumstance. We are the same, we are life. So we also have a root that draws very deep. I mean, that's how the, the dandelion can keep coming back and keep coming back and keep coming back no matter what you do to it. The root goes to a deep source. Mm -hmm. And even if you, I mean, you can exterminate a dandelion if you dig deep enough or if you put a powerful enough poison on it and some people die yeah. as well. But if you don't die, no matter how crushed you are through trauma of various kinds, the beauty is still there. Mm. It can always come back. Mm -hmm. And I, th I feel as though you also, I'm imagining perhaps the dandelion in some ways, this is happening to it as well, but the more you're crushed, the more you're pushed down, the more you're cut off and alienated and harmed, the deeper your sensitivity becomes to that happening in others, whether it's the trees being cut down in, in your neighbor's backyard or the person sitting on the street corner asking for money. You just, the more you've been through that pain yourself, the deeper you're, you are in touch with it and in others around you, which of course is this beautiful thing that... that well, because yeah. you're no longer buying into the identity that society gives them and that they might be giving themselves. Mm -hmm. So you can interact with, you know, a psychiatric patient and refuse to see them through the lens that society offers you to see them through and that they've maybe even taken on. And so, okay... You know, then there are people who do seem like actually crazy, you know? Um, like, you know, part of me would like to say, well, this is, you know, all, um, you know, all what we classify as mental illness is all just deviance from social norms that are essential to the upkeep of the world-destroying machine. And if you stop complying with it, you stop paying, you know, you, you become unable to go along with the program, you are label, labeled, you're pathologized. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, there are also people who I have interacted with who just they lose it, yep. you know. Now, I think that their losing it is itself a symptom of inhumane conditions. Yep. Uh, a very sensitive person in inhumane conditions and in a conceptual box that's too small for the vastness of the human spirit that doesn't make room for mystical experiences that that like I see you know mental illness as a symptom of a, of a social condition but that still leaves us with the question of what do you do with somebody when they totally lose their shit yeah and because you know people have written to me when I've done interviews you know had conversations or public events with like Kelly Brogan mm -hmm. and they're like, well, you know, these medicines really helped me. I was 
my life was falling apart and they helped me get through that time. So, yeah, like I don't think that there's necessarily a sharp distinction between the people who are actually mentally ill and the ones who have just been pathologized and labeled. Um, and I also think that being institutionalized can make you crazy because mm -hmm. the conditions can be horrific. But there's still maybe a question in, in, well, let's, for rhetorical purpose, say, let's say that there's a question in my mind um, that, you know, still, like, what do we do with people who are, who have just broken down, like they have a psychotic break um, and they're harming themselves and others. Yeah. 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 And that's, I mean, it's, I'm glad you asked that rhetorical question because it is certainly the first question that I often get to when I talk about these issues. And I think it's a really important one that we all have to be grappling with because the reality is that right now, American society and I think many other societies in the, especially in the Western world are not set up in such a way where there is the space, the time, the resources, the the patience, um, you know, whatever else there is that's needed. These don't these things don't exist for for those people who are truly so spun out that you know it really is like a serious immediate uh, situation. And it and because the reality is it requires stepping outside of of so many of our society's current boxes, you know, the nine to five work day, um, like capitalism and the fact that right. like time equals money in the society such that if your best friend spins out and really what they need is someone to sit with them for 48 hours, who has the ability to do that? Because bills have to be paid and, and jobs have to be gotten to. And so right. there is no immediately visible solution um but it does require us coming together i think locally in our neighborhoods at the very immediate grassroots level to think strategically and creatively about like how do how do we step outside of these conventions so that when shit hits the fan for someone we can help them be um because really, it, it often is quite simple what a person needs. It isn't necessarily easy, but like m many friends of mine who've, who've been in like seriously what you would call psychotic states, um, they needed connection. They, they talk about like I needed connection and I needed the time and space required to to reconnect and instead I got 911 called on me and I was put in restraints and thrown on a stretcher sent to the hospital and my pants were pulled down and a needle of antipsychotic drug was injected into me like that's what people are getting when really what they need is someone sitting with them and and being by their side as they navigate their altered state of consciousness their non-ordinary state whatever you might want to call it um, yeah. And who can really do that right now? It's very hard. <laughs> right. And, and right. Yeah. It doesn't fit into the, to the matrix as it's constituted. Totally. Like maybe what they need isn't even just 48 hours. Maybe what they need is to spend 
a few seasons with their hands in the soil, mm -hmm. you know, and and then not to not as like that will fix you. Then you can come back to the same circumstances that made you lose your shit to begin with. But like that's not if that's the goal. If the goal is to somehow make us better able to cope with the roles that society offers us, then you could even say that, that the psychiatric meds are the best way to do that. Mm -hmm. Like they're almost the only way to do that. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you could say, well, you know, people, instead of taking psychiatric meds, they could, you know, do Kundalini yoga instead, and that would fix them. Or they can do meditation or something like that. But, you know, I don't think that that actually would give would produce the desired effect of being able to then finally tolerate your dead-end job, your debt load, your feeling of meaninglessness and purposelessness. You know, it's not mm -hmm. like, like that yoga or meditation is some alternate way to fix your brain chemistry. Ideally, practices like that would make you even less tolerant mm -hmm. of the conditions that drove you crazy and turn you into more of a... Let's use the word revolutionary, not in the sense of violent overthrow of, of the state, mm -hmm. but um, somebody who wants to change those conditions that are intolerable and that that we are encouraged to tolerate through various kinds of threats and rewards and um, psychiatric manipulation. So, yeah, and this is like like so many other issues. I feel like the debate, polarized debates, obscure the real questions. It's not actually about what should we do with crazy people. Like, yes, that is, given current circumstances, that is something that we have to, it's in our face. Like, mm -hmm. here's some, you know, some guy walking up and down the street with his pants down, ranting and raving. Like, what do you do? Mm -hmm. You have to do something. And, and so that, I'm not saying that that's not a question, but... If all of our attention and energy is, is engaged in, do we medicate him or do we do this or do we do that, then we're not going to see what is producing, and, and it's what is producing that, yeah. that outburst. And it's actually really necessary to ascribe it to personal dysfunction if you're going to uh, stop people from questioning the system. Totally. So the, for me, the question is, what kind of changes does society need to make to for people not to be, you know, going crazy all the time in a way that's destructive to themselves and others. And, and part of those changes obviously means bringing people more into connection with each other and with nature, uh, de-engaging from machine dominance over our lives, the dominance of the clock, the dominance of the calendar, the dominance of, of the schedule, you know, mm -hmm. um, the immersion in a world of commodities and anonymous functionaries, digitally mediated, et cetera, et cetera. And you mentioned capitalism. Like a lot of this goes down to the structure of the money system and the way that it necessitates the endless conversion of the world into commodities and into services. Mm -hmm. Like it goes pretty deep here. And then <laughs> yeah. of course the, yeah. And then, then like the ideologies and um, uh, paradigms that disallow any state of consciousness that is inconsistent with industrial society, like all that has to change. 
And unless and until that changes, we're going to have people breaking. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> A sigh is like what I, f I feel like I need to do right now. Yeah, because it's so big and it can feel so immobilizing when you think about how big it is because in the immediate now like what when it's this big like what what can we do and I I mean I know I know for me that and I think part of what really drew me to your work when I found when I found your writing was that it's it aligns so much with what I had realized for myself which is that it it really does begin with the stories we tell ourselves about who we are and what it means to suffer and what it means to be so-called normal and so-called crazy and just what it means to be human. And I think there's so much power in recognizing that and that even if everything around us is this, the, the bigness of what's, you know, what's causing so much pain in the world is, is this, is just so, so big. When you realize that everything is built on stories and starting with yourself and how you how you sit in your skin, how you what you feel when you walk down the sidewalk and look at at the person coming towards you, um, it does it all comes down to stories, and you have the power to write your own story and to let go of the stories that you decide don't work for you. And it isn't necessarily going to change capitalism tomorrow, <laughs> like or you know, <laughs> but it 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 at least helped if for me what it's helped me do is just deepen the trust I have in my instincts and in like the moments when I like right now when I just like break down in tears and just like what's happening in the world that like this is wisdom like I need to trust these tears they're like really important messages from something like deep deep within me that goes so much deeper than language just what I feel about what's happening in the world and so today, you know, I, I still feel the emotions that I felt when I was labeled bipolar. I still have these, you know, profound states of euphoria and these like plummets into just despair and grief and angst and all of that. But I'm not afraid of them today because I have let go of the story that they're signs of sickness and of pathology. And I really, I, I have such respect for them because I know that they're just these deep instincts that aren't like mine as like an individual self like I'm just a body channeling like this deeper thing that we're all a part of and I'm like actually now allowing myself to feel it without being afraid and I think the more that we each in our own lives do that like question the stories we're telling ourselves about who we are um the the more spaces and opportunities will just kind of like present themselves to us to start to step outside of these conventional yeah. boxes, even if it's just in teeny tiny, you know, like a potluck dinner on Wednesday nights with your neighbors where you come together and talk about how fucking hard it is to be alive in this world. Like that could keep someone from checking themselves into a psych ward, you know, mm -hmm. and which, which might save their life, <laughs> not going into that psych ward. Um, these these seemingly tiny pockets of connection like that to me is how this broader change is going to yeah. eventually happen so, so i think i'm i'm, I'm thinking about so-called bipolar so-called disorder 
<laughs> and and one of my favorite sayings comes to mind, uh, coined by this guy Tom Atlee. Um, he says, "Things are getting better and better, and worse and worse, faster and faster." <laughs> like, it's it's true. Like, in a way, like you know, bipolar disorder is tapping into the truth of the planet right now. Like horrible, horrible things are happening and they're getting worse. Um, the, you know, vast areas that had been relatively pristine and undisturbed are being converted into biofuels plantations, for example. Um, the, I mean, horrible things are happening. Uh, and, and there's also this tremendously exciting shift in consciousness that's happening that's being expressed in in amazing projects on land in in cities you know with people with with i mean there's amazing things happening at the same time um, the the dysfunction of the medical system is is reaching unimaginable extremes and, and at the same time tremendously powerful holistic and alternative therapies are are thriving on the margins. Mm -hmm. Like all this is happening at the same time. There's really good reason to be in total despair and there's really good reason to be euphoric. Mm -hmm. So what happens though, like, so like these energies are present and a sensitive person feels them. Then they get translated through a story. Like it's like a lens that, that takes these raw energies, which are really true and present, and turns them into something that can make somebody depressed or manic. Um, it can be like these terrible things that are happening and you can feel them, like a sensitive person can feel it. Then the story says, therefore, and it'll bring all these conclusions about the fate of the world, your own impotence and powerlessness, um, the, the you know inevitable future, uh, human nature, like that's a story though. Mm -hmm. It'll never change. That's a story. You don't know that. And on the manic side, you know it can also take the this 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 beautiful, powerful, true energy and convert it into something that inflates the ego that that makes you self-important, that um, ungrounds you from practical reality. Like there's other, there's stories there too mm -hmm. that, that make it hard to actually in a healthy way contain and hold and experience these energies or even like allow them to go through you. Yep. Like, it, it, like they catch it, like the story catches that energy and then takes you with it to some place that actually is really destructive. Yeah. I'm not sure if I agree with you though that we can actually write our own stories. I think we need, or maybe maybe I would say we need help. Mm. That that maybe collectively, like you can try to make a new story about yourself and your life, and if it's ready to happen, you might succeed. But that's not because necessarily you did it. It's because you chose it at the moment it was available to choose. 
And then the question is, well, where does the story come from and how does it become available to choose? And I think a lot of that is a function of community mm-hmm. and the collective holding of stories, which is why, and this is something that is part of your work right now. You want to bring people together in groups, like physically, not just on the internet, but physically to, um, and maybe, um, I'm not sure, maybe you can tell me like if this is kind of what you're doing, but to hold each other in an alternative story, alternative to the, uh, you know, worker bee in the grand project of civilization and alternative to the crazy psychological, psychiatric patient, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, we, so this, this new project that we've launched, um, and by we, I mean, um, this nonprofit that in January of this year came into being in the world called uh, Inner Compass Initiative. Um, and the name, I should say, came from this, yeah, really this sense of this deep intuitive wisdom that we each have within us that I believe is not actually an individually owned thing, but that we're just tapping into this collective wisdom. Um, this wisdom that we get trained to distrust and ignore and suppress or pathologize. Um, really, the name is yeah is about moving back towards that, both within our own personal lives and collectively. Um, so our organization launched in January, and our mission is to help people make more informed choices about the mental health system and and so-called mental illness and mental health and psychiatric drugs and all of that. But it's really a much broader mission about you know, what does it mean to be human and, and how do we come together to um, explore and question and think critically about these stories. We've come to tell ourselves about suffering and so-called madness and craziness and all of that. Um, and... And really, you know, what I'm most excited about is the idea of supporting people to actually like leave the mental health system, to leave these stories or to avoid taking these stories on. And, and, um, and so our main focus right now is on the issue of psychiatric drug withdrawal, because there are millions upon millions of people around the world on these drugs and there is literally zero information within the medical and mental health systems on how to safely come off of them. No research into it, into safe tapering protocols. Doctors are not trained in helping people come off. Of course, there's not much incentive for that anyways. Um, but there's just, there's a dire need for people out there to, um, get access to information on how to come off of these drugs if, if they decide they want to do that. And, you know, we're not anti-drug. We really believe in informed choice um, about these drugs, which I don't really think any of us have been making because the narratives around them have been so carefully crafted by um, powerful institutions and corporations. Yeah, what does informed choice mean? <laughs> I know. When the yeah. Of information, like yeah. When I mean, it's not really possible. The moment you call these drugs medications you lose the ability to make an informed choice about them because that very word medication brings with it an entire ideology of sickness and treatment and doctors and patients. And right. so, um, so yeah, so 
basically what we've built is um, a crowdsourced hub of information um, taken from the what we call the layperson withdrawal community like because there's no nowhere really you that you can turn to in the mental health system for help with coming off of these drugs people around the world have been turning to each other um, to to figure out like how the heck do we get ourselves off these drugs and in such a way that our lives don't fall apart because these drugs cause can can cause very serious withdrawal problems upon stopping them and so we spent about two years taking our own personal experiences coming off and helping other people to come off and, you know, reaching out to the withdrawal community to like learn from people, you know, what's worked, what hasn't. And we have created this freely available resource <clears throat> on our website, um, which I'm sure we'll share at the end of this, hopefully, um, so that people can begin to take back their power really. And, and, to, to, you know, get the resources they need to, like, better think through, you know, what kind of relationship, if any, do I want to these drugs? And to your question about, you know, like, are, how are we, like, this idea of bringing people together in person, that's really what I'm most excited about, because to me, um, building a future, like, beyond the mental health system, which is really what our vision is, is it's going to happen at the grassroots. It's going to happen with like a local, like a neighborhood of people coming together to say, um, if one of us finds ourselves in a time of, of trouble, like what can we all do together to help, to help that person so that they have options besides going to the hospital or taking mm -hmm. a drug? Um, hey, I have an extra bedroom. If someone ever needs just like a quiet space to come decompress, stay with me or... I'm happy to take on laundry if, if you're having a really tough time and you're just like your chores, you can't handle them, like I'll help you out there or I'm happy to cook meals, you know, just literally at that level, it, I, I'm excited about supporting people to come together to just think creatively and strategically about like how do we extricate ourselves from this sense that we need professionals to help us in times of trouble. We can help each other. And so we've built these networking platforms on our websites that allow people to, they can be anonymous and you just, you share a little bit of information about like what you're interested in connecting with other people around like mutual aid or discussion group or mm -hmm. organizing a protest or whatever it might be. Um, and we also have the same platform for people who are coming off meds and you can then look, uh, search for people based on geography. So I want to find people within a five mile radius of where I live who are coming off meds and want to meet up for a cup of tea because I'm coming off too and I'm, I feel totally alone. I don't have anyone to talk to because the reality is there's so many of us whose lives are touched in some way by the mental health system. Like right now on this street, I'm sure I have at least seven neighbors who are on an antidepressant or a benzodiazepine or their sister is or their kid is, but we don't know e about each other. How do we find each other so that we can support one another? So my hope is that this online platform can be used in the service of in-person connection. And what's it called, the platform? Um, we call, the, the platform we have for people coming off meds, we call it TWP Connect, the Withdrawal Project TWP. So we uh -huh. call it TWP Connect. And our platform for people who are just more broadly thinking critically about the mental health system and psychiatric diagnoses and psychiatric drugs, we call that ICI Connect, so Intercompass Initiative ICI 
connect. So if people look up the Withdrawal Project or Inner Compass Initiative, they'll find it. Yes, yeah. yeah. Our website is, for Inner Compass Initiative, the website is www.theinnercompass.org. And yeah. for the Withdrawal Project, it's withdrawal.theinnercompass.org. Yeah, I mean, usually, like, I, I don't even, like, give URLs anymore. You know, like, yeah, I guess like, here's the words <laughs> to look up, you know, you'll find it. <laughs> well, yeah. in, I mean, are we are search engine optimized now, but honest, honestly, there are times where I'm like, how long is it going to be before we don't show up on, uh-huh. <laughs> on Google search? And so, <laughs> right. Cause you're fake news. And stuff. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. Anti-science. Exactly. Like that's one of the categories of fake news, like things that are um, anti-science. Yeah. Which um, is so ironic yeah. because. Right. Yeah. <laughs> but science is not monolithic, but there's certain uh, camps in any scientific question that are much more welcome in the power structures than others. Definitely. For example, um, GMOs. You know, I, I just I just critiqued this uh, a couple of months ago. I critiqued this article that the title of it was. Opposition to GMOs is not only unscientific, it's immoral. Um, And yeah, like the dominant scientific opinion is that GMOs are perfectly safe. But it's not unanimous. And then you look into what, why is one side ascendant? Is it because they're right? Or is it because there are economic and institutional mechanisms that promote certain views like Mm -hmm. where does the funding come from Mm -hmm. (laughs) for example totally not to be cynical here but you know like or but you know or say you're a graduate student and you want to want to you know get your phd and there's lots of funding and support for one research question and not so much for another research question so what are you going to do yep yeah yeah i mean and this very issue is the kind of thing that i like love thinking about people coming together to talk about, like to just think critically about together, you know, because when you, like it can be profoundly, like it's been profoundly transformative for me to sit in a circle of friends, fellow ex-patients and say like, holy shit, man, we made a lot of people a lot of money during our mental patient careers. Just, you know, thinking about the number of pill bottles we picked up at the pharmacy that mm-hmm. paid the salaries of the pharmacists and of course that paid the pharmaceutical companies that produced the drugs and the doctors who wrote the prescriptions for us the the week after week after month after year of therapy appointments with with therapists who were just you know like i i have to say i never had a therapist who was like intently focused on making him or herself obsolete to me like it really was we're gonna have a nice long relationship together as we explore yourself and I just assumed I'm gonna be a lifelong therapy patient a lifelong drug taker I mean as consumers quote-unquote of the drugs of the therapies of the so-called treatments yeah there's a lot of money to be made and so imagine the power if a group of people came together around someone's kitchen table and just talked about this together that could profoundly shift someone in in their own story that and that could change the course of their life and it so it's to me sounds like you're a threat to the economy (laughs) i mean it's it is so radical these i it is indeed radical to think about you know how do you extricate yourself from the 
consumer role. And yeah, and there are a lot of powerful corporations out there who I'm sure would not be psyched about the idea of like thousands of small groups of people around the world starting to engage critically around around this stuff. Um, yeah, I mean, and, and I, if our website, you know, like basically the withdrawal project is, is a website aimed at helping you extricate yourself from this, this iteration of consumerism. And right. so, yeah, and this yeah. is part of a, of, a, of a larger, more general movement um, that I talk about sometimes, uh, degrowth, mm -hmm. economic degrowth, because really it's a re reclamation of certain social functions from the money economy back into a gift economy. Like that, totally. you know, a group of people getting together every Wednesday night or helping each other with chores or something like that, like they're not paying each other to do that. No. It's not adding to GDP. It's not something that uh, banks can lend money into existence to, to finance. It's making all of the people involved a little less dependent on money. So it literally is shrinking GDP. Yeah. But is it shrinking quality of life? <laughs> no. Yeah. It's actually enhancing quality of life. But the enhancement is not something that shows up in economic statistics. Yep. And it's not enhancing the lives of of those who were previously profiting off of all those extra therapy sessions that are now right. no longer happening because people are helping each Although other. Although those people, you could argue that they're not actually benefiting from this either. Yeah, for sure. You know, a, a, a lot of the uh, people in the system, who even who have high status in the system, when they get together for beers or to snort a few lines with their colleagues after work, you know, I mean, are they talking about how fulfilled they are in their job? And how much they love it that they now instead of getting an hour with each patient, they only get twenty minutes with each mm. patient or twelve minutes with each patient. And do they enjoy negotiating with the HMOs, you know, mm. and the, filling out the insurance paperwork and how many employees I get to have to just do the paperwork? And like, I mean, really, like, it it seems like we're in a system that works for almost nobody. Totally. Not not even the people who are, you know, the. The ones with the power. Totally. It's so true. I mean, and it speaks, like, when you think about what I'm guessing is the the impulse of, you know, 99.9% .9 of the people who end up going to medical school or becoming psychologists or social workers, it's this deep human drive to to care, to help, to help yeah. people. And and because our, our society is set up in such a way that help has been almost entirely professionalized and turned into a service, as you say... People just like, it's like almost like second nature to just, oh, of course I'm going to go to graduate school to become, to get a PhD. Like that's what you do when you want to help people. Like we don't even, we've like forgotten that <laughs> prior to this modern <laughs> era, like the thought of pay, you know, money involvement in, in helping Yeah, I mean, part of it is like, yes, I want to help people and here's a way to do it that I will also have money security yeah. so that i can feel yeah. safe within this right. <laughs> system of but like yeah I, and there's nothing wrong like we should have security there's no reason yeah. why we shouldn't have security in the world <laughs> i mean people we there's no material shortage of anything that we really need this the the scarcity is artificial mm -hmm. at this point mm -hmm. yeah yeah, I mean, I, th I think one of the things that I think is important is this point we've been talking about that 
we really are all in this together. This is not about like bad doctors and bad people in the mental health system are bad and like, you know, patients are victims and like we are all in this together. We've all been, we've all internalized these stories of what it means to help and what it means to be sick and all these, all of these stories. And we really have to come together and support one another and, and not polarize around like us and them good and bad and because i think the pain like i'm sure you know that there is this part of me that wants to go back to all my old shrinks and therapists and like hold them and and just say you know i understand why why you put me on all those drugs i understand why you told me my brain was broken like and i forgive you i'm not i'm i don't hold this against you as a person like you went through these schooling systems and these training programs and all of these you know indoctrination mechanisms that led you to think that this was what you needed to do to help me and i and i appreciate (laughs) that deep impulse in you and how can we together you know work so that you can keep um aligned with that impulse to help, but actually not, you know, unintentionally harm anymore. Yeah. You know, like I think we, we really have to find ways to stay connected or to reconnect, you know, on both sides of the proverbial locked door. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and yeah, and that's not going to be easy. I think there's a lot of fear. Like I think I've tried to get in touch with some of my old doctors and they won't talk to me they've they've read I I know some of them have seen my writings online and I'm sure they're afraid I'm going to sue them you know I I I get they're probably terrified of talking to me I don't want them to be afraid I want to I really actually want to like hug them however strange that sounds yeah (laughs) there's a lot of fear and that's part of the whole matrix like you know even by having this conversation and putting it online I'd probably be opening myself up to a lawsuit. Like someone, you know, listens to it and decides not to get the care they need. And then they end up harming themselves. And, um, or maybe like their family say, well, you know, you should go go to see the psychiatrist. And they say, no, no, Charles Eisenstein (laughs) says that mental illness is a response to a deep wrongness in the world. And, you know, Laura Delano Tells people to go off their meds. Go off their meds, right. <laughs> and I really trust him, so I'm not going to do it. And then, like, you know, later he ends up committing suicide. And they're like, oh, who's this Eisenstein guy? And, like, I could... Um, now, I have a very strong defense mechanism against lawsuits, which is that I don't accumulate money. <laughs> so... <laughs> but that's... But, you know, like... And I'm, I'm, I'm kind of, you know, being humorous here, but... It speaks to any investment in the system. Like if I had a, a you know board certified position somewhere, if I had financial assets, then then that makes me vulnerable. Mm-hmm. Now I suppose like I could get you know charged with some criminal thing. Like I don't know. Like I mean these days, if your friend does come to you and they're feeling suicidal, and you don't call the professionals, you might be criminally liable for something i don't know yeah so and but even if not like it's still you know like you were saying before like this this um 
social agreement that if someone's really in trouble, you should call a professional, otherwise you're being irresponsible. There's fear that goes along with that, fear of having done the wrong thing, fear of having been, fear of being seen as irresponsible. Yeah. Um, and, and there's also yeah. this faith that we have cultivated in, and, and really these people, you know, who we call professionals, that we have invested and imbued them with this power and responsibility that that a psychiatrist actually feels responsible for the life of mm-hmm. their patient like that we have actually created a system where we give individuals that much power and actually like ownership over the lives of others i think is it it's it's happened because of a kind of faith we've placed in these professionals and also right. this this fear it's kind of like a systematized uh, abuser, victim, rescuer dynamic. You know that whole that whole yeah, psychological yeah. triad. That that you know people are becoming aware of that now, um, and seeing how these three roles mutually reinforce and sustain each other. Um, yeah, gonna here's this this poor person. I'm gonna go in and rescue them, um, not realizing how that role forms an identity and a sense of self-worth that is a cover or a compensation for something that's actually hurting inside totally. and needs healing. And, and so like on a systemic level, same thing. Like, and, and, and you know, stepping into the rescuer mode then um, obscures, cuts off access to the thing that actually needs healing. Totally. So the same thing, you know, systemically, the, the rescuer then... So we have the abuser and we have the victims and then we have the rescuer, which is the psychological industry that goes in and helps the people who have been abused by society, by life, by their parents, by whatever. And, and just as on the personal level, it obscures what really needs attention, which is these, the, the social conditions and the economic conditions that generate an endless supply of victims totally yeah the i mean the woundedness that all of these different players and all and these feedback loops are carrying the un- unrecognized wounds that go so deep i mean i like i know that some of those like as i most of the psychiatrists i saw were really kind good people i did see at least one who I look back on and I see was like quite cruel and manipulative and um, and I know that that particular psychiatrist I'm thinking of carries deep wounds and that he probably is not even conscious of Um, and so it is about like making the shift from you know like that all of the players involved in this we need to shift in to this question of like what's happened to me to all of us to you know because we are all so wounded in this and it's it's our unrecognized and unhealed wounds that i think are like fueling and reinforcing these systems and um and we have to heal together if we're going to actually be able to like extricate ourselves from them because i'm not in this place of like fight the system and like 
rip it down like I used to be. I totally was there for uh, the first couple of years of my like activism. Um, and now I'm really in the place of like, how do we create, how do we relocalize and within our local communities, like awaken ourselves and create these spaces such that people just slowly over time are like, why do I, why would I go pay someone to help me with this when I can go knock on my neighbor's door and just slowly over time the we just mm-hmm. like extricate ourselves from these tentacles of professionalized help and like institutional care and all of that. And it'll take many generations of this. I'm not expecting in five years from now, we'll all, we'll all be there, but it is going to take all of us finding the readiness to like look within ourselves and see our own wounds. Yes. Yeah. I think it, it, it looks like it will take many generations uh, and not just in this particular issue for uh, the planet to be healed. And I also hold open the possibility for miraculous overnight healing. Like that happens sometimes too. Good point. Either way, the question is, okay, miraculous overnight healing, what are the conditions that make that possible? And what do we have to do to create those conditions? It turns out to be the same thing that we need to do to bring about healing on a 500 year time scale. So it's really... I like that. Yeah. <laughs> it doesn't, yeah. For me, it doesn't matter actually mm-hmm. whether overnight healing is possible or not. Like I'm not pinning my hopes on a miracle, but I am, but I, I've realized that, that the things that um, invite miracles are exactly the things that need to be done even if there isn't gonna be a miracle. Mm-hmm. It's a bit of a paradox. Mm-hmm. So is there, um, maybe I think we should probably bring the uh, recording to an end soon. Okay, so Laura, what would you tell your 13 or 14 year old self now if you could speak to her? What does she need to know? Uh, trust. Like I think that, that if I was speaking to her, I'd say what you're feeling, what you're thinking, this terror you're feeling, this confusion you have, this questioning you're grappling with. Just trust that this is happening for a very important reason and that it's full of meaning and wisdom and that if you listen to it and if you find the courage to stay with it and to to trust in it, it's going to lead you closer and deeper into like who you really are and the fact that you don't know who you are right now the fact that you want to die the fact that you are just debilitated by those racing thoughts and just the urge to just channel your pain into hurting yourself uh it's it's not because there's something wrong with you. It's because you're awake and you're waking up and you're feeling the world around you. And don't let them tell you you're broken. Don't let them tell you your pain is a sign of sickness. It's really a sign of your aliveness. Um, I think that's what I'd say to her. Mm. And I'd also say you are so far from alone because I think I felt 
convinced I was the only one going through it. I had no idea that I was so far from alone. So. Yeah. I'd say something similar to anyone listening who's in anguish, um, has a diagnosis, is on meds. Um, and, and to say that, you know, however people react to inhuman conditions, is how life reacts. That's the life in you. Mm. And knowing that there's nothing wrong with you, that it is an inhumane system may not help. Like, just having that realization doesn't necessarily change the system. In fact, it doesn't change the system. Mm -hmm. Like, this isn't a shortcut to all of a sudden feeling better. But I think that it's at least... At least there's... It makes a um, the possibility of a path visible, and the path leading to someone being someone who wants to change that system. Yeah. And to to like you wouldn't have been visited with this condition for no reason. Yeah. Even if that reason is that you know what it's like now, or even if that reason is you no longer buy in so much to the world that brought you to this place. That doesn't automatically mean that you know how to solve it, yeah. but you know how to listen for opportunities to solve it. That's what compassion is. Yeah. And I get, yeah, we just celebrate, yeah, celebrate that, that willingness that I see in everybody, no matter how crushed they are. Like there's that root, that dandelion root. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the dandelion just doesn't doesn't just want to live. The dandelion wants to make beautiful flowers. Mm. You, the the most abused, damaged bird doesn't want to just survive. It wants to sing. Mm. Like we want to pour out our gifts, not just cope. And that yearning in human beings, which I see again and again and again. That, that's what gives me hope for the future. Mm. That's, that's my source of optimism. Mm. I'm right with you in that. And I think our pain is what makes our songs all the more beautiful. It's like the fuel and the spark and the, yeah, it's, it's, we need it to give our gifts. Um, Without it, it wouldn't, yeah, like without the darkness, you can't appreciate the light. However cliche that sounds, like I see that if it wasn't for all the pain I went through and still grapple with it every day and feel deeply, like I wouldn't be able to appreciate being alive in the way that I do. They really, Mm -hmm. they need each other. Pain isn't to be gotten rid of, it's to like... I, I think of my pain as like my dark companion that's just with me and I like welcome it in by my side and just sit with it, like especially when it's the most acute. 
because I know I need it. And it's, yeah. it's what fuels me and my work and my activism and my desire to connect with others. It's the pain, really. For me, it's what kind of keeps me honest. Mm-hmm. You know, like what, mm-hmm. I have to, what, I, what I do has to make sense given the pain that I'm feeling on, you know, for the incarcerated or for the, you know, institutionalized or for the genocided or the tortured or the extinguished, mm-hmm. you know, the, the, yeah, like if, if I'm holding that, then the things that aren't relevant to that just don't, don't, they don't draw me so much. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not like I develop more willpower. It's that, uh, I'm not so interested in that. Mm-hmm. To the extent that I can do that. I'm not saying that I'm fully aligned, mm-hmm. actually, with healing, with the cause of healing. Mm-hmm. Um, but when I am, it's because of that. Mm-hmm. All right. Thank you so much, Laura Delano. Thanks, Charles, for having me. This has been wonderful. This has been a new and ancient story with your host, Charles Eisenstein. I offer this podcast in the spirit of the gift, by which I mean that I don't withhold premium content for a price or put up paywalls or do affiliate marketing or have advertising or anything like that. Instead, I rely on supporters like you. If you would like to support it, you can subscribe at charleseisenstein.net for a small monthly amount, or you can subscribe for free as well. Either way, you get the same content, everything's the same, and you'll be notified every time a new podcast comes out. Also on the site, you can find archived episodes along with everything else that I produce, essays, books, videos, online courses. Thank you very much for listening, and I'll be with you again next time.